Did you know that slowing aging by a couple of percent would save more money than eradicating cancer? There are many reasons to be passionate about aging research, but this is perhaps the major one. To get out this message, we decided to start a podcast at VitaDAO. I'm Camille, also known as the Aging Scientist on Twitter, and I will be hosting this podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Dan Enninger, who is an investigator at the DZNE in Bonn in Germany. He has been publishing very interesting and thought-provoking papers for a while, challenging current thinking in gerontology, which is the main reason that I invited him, so that a wider audience can know about this exciting and important work. It's great to see you and welcome to the Aging Science Podcast today. I'm looking forward to our talk. And so we will talk about your work, which uh, uncovers shortcomings of mouse longevity research. And this is also very important to me because I am myself also working on a project where we reanalyze mouse longevity studies and we're trying to improve the literature so that we can actually find true geroprotective drugs. And I think you're also very interested in that. And maybe I'll just let you give a brief summary why your work is important first. Um, yeah, sure. so I give the summary. Yeah, yeah, just give us a brief okay. summary of yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah, so basically, I mean, um, I think sort of um, research into the biology of aging so far um, has basically oftentimes focused on lifespan as a primary readout to draw inferences about aging. Um, and there are, of course, shortcomings associated with that, which I'll explain uh, in a minute. The other point I think that is often um, a shortcoming of experimental designs of uh, studies, at least in the past, is that they're actually not suitably designed to draw inferences about aging rate, because for that you need more than one time point. Um, uh, and people often just have one time point of treated basically and untreated controls. Um, so about the first argument with lifespan, um, or I think for mice, the situation is actually very clear because um, mice actually, when they die in old age, they don't die due to you know, general physiological decline, um, but rather they die due to specific diseases and the specific diseases that they die of are various kinds of cancers, um, actually often very specific ones like lymphomas, for example. Um, and then, I mean, if you were to kind of imagine running a discovery pipeline, um, in which you want to find out genes that regulate the biology of aging broadly. And your approach is to, for example, screen all kinds of mouse knockouts and check for the ones that are long lived. Then what your discovery pipeline will most likely yield are actually genes that modify the development of lethal neoplastic diseases, such as lymphomas, right? Because you set it up that way. Uh, whether then these um, knockouts, for example, have broader effects um, on aging besides um, that endpoint, I think is entirely unclear just from that study alone because um, you didn't look at it that way, right? So I think this is a major shortcoming in, in mouse um, aging studies that use lifespan as, as a sole endpoint, right? That don't do anything else. Um, of course, you could argue that there are um, longevity effects in other model organisms such as in C. elegans and Drosophila, and I would agree basically that it's less clear in these species what the cause of death is. 
But I think it would also be a big assumption to just assume that, that there it is general physiological decline, right? Um, it could well be something more specific. Um, and I think that would also deserve attention looking into that into more detail. There are, for example, some indications that in C. elegans, they might die because of defects in pharyngeal pumping when they're old. So basically they're starving because they're, uh, they can't um, uh, pump in the bacteria anymore. Um, there's also evidence for overgrowth of bacteria in, in, in the intestine. Um, so there may well be sort of specific aspects of biology that are perturbed um, and that limit lifespan in C. elegans, for example, as well. Um, and I think then, of course, if you run sort of a discovery pipeline again, you'll hit you'll hit those aspects of the biology of aging, but not necessarily others. Uh, for Trisopula also, I think it's not really clear, um, but there is evidence, for example, that um, overgrowth of intestinal uh, stem cells might be a trigger uh, and might lead to leak, uh, sort of a leaky gut. I don't think that that's the whole story because that affects only parts of the animals. Um, um, but again, I think it, it would be a big assumption to just jump to the conclusion that whatever longevity effect you're seeing is due to sort of a broad effect on aging, right? Most likely it is not. And so I think that's where the value, and I think a lot of kind of um, work or develop technical developments over the past decade or so um, make it possible now to, to perform much larger scale studies, right? Like multi-omics, deep phenotyping and so forth. And I think that's a great opportunity in aging research nowadays that we can much sort of in a much sort of finer grain way look at what the biology, what, what are aging outcomes actually across different tissues and systems and how do treatments interact with them, right? And so I think this is of course a direction that we need to go into. The other point with the aging rate that I was mentioning, I think that's also uh, important um, because if you run, I mean, oftentimes studies are kind of run in a way you have young untreated animals, you have old untreated animals. This allows you to kind of extract an age effect, right? Um, and then you have old treated animals. And if basically the old treated animals on your study endpoint, endpoint look more like the young animals, you would conclude that this is an anti-aging effect. Um, but that's not taking into account that you can, of course, influence phenotypes in direct ways um, that are actually independent of targeting age-dependent change. To give an example, if we're looking at a sort of age-related cognitive decline as a phenotype of interest, right, um, then we would have a difference between young and old animals. At some point, there is a decline in cognitive performance. What we would expect from sort of a real anti-aging intervention that targets the rate of change is that you would just get a treatment effect once um, the age-dependent decline starts, um, and then you would slow the rate of the development of that. Um, if you see that you get a treatment effect already before there is an age-dependent change in phenotype, that would suggest um, that you're actually not targeting whatever drives this change, right? To give you an example, um, Alzheimer's disease, right? You have neurodegeneration. Um, if you had a sort of effect on this facet of, of, of aging, if you will, um, then you would have to slow the neurodegeneration process, right? If you take in, in contrast, uh, um, a psychoactive compound that enhances cognition non-specifically, such as coughing or something like that, then you would see treatment effects in, in patient groups, but also in, in, in young and unaffected individuals. And that, of course, cannot be taken as evidence that you're targeting 
uh, whatever mechanisms underlie um, this particular aspect of aging. So I think this is a, sh a shortcoming in, in many studies and that kind of precludes strong conclusions about, um, yeah, about actually what mechanisms of aging are and how we can interfere. And I think that's important to kind of extend this uh, knowledge base in the future. So given that mouse lifespan studies are often considered the gold standard, I can imagine that your uh, work is a sort of controversial. I was wondering what was like the reception when you talk to other aging researchers, how do they feel about um, what, what you're saying? Well, I, I received a lot of positive feedback actually on our uh, recent work, of course, on the molecular psychiatry sort of conceptual paper and also on, the, on our nature communications sort of experimental paper. Um, of course, I realized that invested researchers may not like to hear this kind of conclusion, but I do think it raises important concerns and they need to be considered if we want to go in the, in the right direction, right? Something that I noticed from talking to people, right, is that there is kind of this dichotomy of responses in a way. There are some people who tend to think, well, it cannot possibly be true that this is actually not slowing aging. It must be, and it just has been shown in many prior studies and so forth. But then there's also this other group of people that kind of thinks like, well, I we always knew that you can't really slow aging. So in a way, it's kind of funny to see this dichotomy. And I think it really tells you that it's far less clear um, what the state of, of, of research actually is, right? Yeah, your work was definitely thought provoking. I, I was um, really happy to see it. I mean, maybe not happy, but like I, it made me think so. And that's important. Mm -hmm. And so for this podcast, I split your thesis kind of in two parts. One is kind of the theoretical one where you say mouse is in principle a bad model because it has so much developed so much cancer. And the second is kind of your empirical work, the re recent nature communications work where you studied the different parameters, how they change with age. So maybe we start with the first part with the theoretical. So can you reiterate, why do you think that mice are bad and why are invertebrate also perhaps a bad model of human aging? What are the problems? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily that mice are a bad model for, um, for, for, for aging or for human aging. I think it depends on what you look at. If you use lifespan only and then draw inferences about aging, then this is kind of not a good practice, I think. Um, but of course, they're in sort of an invaluable model for, for, for specific aspects of aging, right? And you just need to see, contrast and compare, um, across mouse and humans. How are age dependent phenotypic changes? How are the trajectories for which aspects is the mouse a good model for which maybe not? Um, and then kind of like, um, consider this case by case. Like in mice, for example, we know well that, um, you know, with aging, talking about brain aging now, right, that you get a loss of uh, synapses over time, as you do in humans. Um, so for that, it might be a good model. Um, for ex But if you then were to consider frank neurodegeneration, such as you get in age-related neurodegenerative diseases, dementias, right, then this does not develop spontaneously during aging in a mouse. So for that, it would ne not necessarily be a good model, perhaps. The two things are interlinked in a way, and one is sort of like a precursor stage of the other. We don't know, um, but this is uh, just as an example. You know, it might be it might differ from 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 case to case. Um, uh, for the invertebrate species, um, I I mean I also I mean of course there it is. If you're interested in modeling human aging, of course it's more difficult to draw parallels there, right? Just because of the 
bigger differences in terms of basic um, anatomy and physiology. Um, but I mean, I think there is a lot you can learn about aging biology in these species as well. Um, it's just not necessarily always clear how well that can be mapped to human aging, but it deserves, I think, attention also in its own right. So to me, it sounds like you're saying the mouse might be good for studying aspects of aging. However, with the modern geroscience hypothesis, to me, it means that we want to find a drug that increases both health span and lifespan and affects all different, uh, different kind of age-related traits. And if lifespan is not a good readout in mice, then maybe this is a big problem, right? Yeah, I mean, I do think, I, I just think we need more work there basically, right? So I do think, um, I mean, we did, for example, a survey uh, of rapamycin studies, past rapamycin studies, kind of checking um, how did people design their studies? Did they include young treated controls? Did they only have old um, animals attend and so forth? Um, and I think if you look at that, then you see that, that I mean, you could just do studies, including more than one time point, right, to see whether you get great effects. And then we would maybe learn more about whether or not there are, or how broad sort of the anti-aging effects are. I can only talk from the studies that we have carried out ourselves with rapamycin, for example, that's almost 10 years ago. Um, and actually, initially, we kind of fell into the same trap. We were kind of originally designing our study in the same way, um, i.e. we had sort of a young group, only control group that received the placebo. Um, and then we had um, sort of aged animals that were either treated with rapamycin or received the placebo. Um, and we then only later on actually included groups, young groups of animals that really were treated with rapamycin because I had the impression looking at the data that a lot of the sort of anti-aging effects seen in the rapamycin treated animals may actually be sort of non-specific drug effects based on what we knew at that time already about um, uh, the biology of mTOR and about rapamycin effects and so forth. So based on these studies that we've conducted, it seems, you know, that this sort of cheros, this kind of hypothesis that's implied by the, by the cheroscience approach may not necessarily hold based on our studies, but I do think it would be valuable, of course, for other people to add in as well and to kind of carry out their studies in a way that you can, you know, you can um, gain more insights into whether that hypothesis actually holds or not. Yes, yeah, so I think that's one of the central concepts here, which I like. Your work shows that probably including a young control, which almost no one does, would help us to interpret uh, mouse aging studies. Yeah. And I want to focus on this in the second half of the podcast, but before maybe we can uh, further discuss the cancer issue. So I think you write 70 to 90% of deaths in mice are attributable to cancer. Mm -hmm. That's based on the literature as well as our own work. And you... you you say most anti-aging compounds are also anti-carcinogenic. Yeah, so we did what we did is kind of in our recent molecular psychiatry paper, we did a literature review um, focusing actually on the original hallmarks of aging paper, so the 2013 uh, paper. Um, and we wanted to look at all the pharmacological, dietary, and genetic interventions um, that people had sort of, that the authors had linked to um, well, to anti-aging effects via their effects on lifespan. Um, and then we asked a simple question, um, for what fraction of these interventions is there evidence that they're anti-cancer? 
Um, uh, and we found that for over 80% um, of cases that has been demonstrated in the literature that they have anti-cancer effects, right? Um, so that would be in line actually with the notion that um, you simply see longevity effects under those treatments because you're targeting cancer. Um, and that would also be in line with the theoretical discussion we had before, right? That if you set up a study like that, uh, and, and there is one principal cause of death um, in a species such as cancer in mice, then of course you're likely actually hitting that particular cause of death if your readout is lifespan only, right? Um, and we then wanted to, we also considered the argument um, that, well, you could just influence cancer via influencing aging, right? Uh, so a sort of a counter argument would be given that you slow aging, you also slow the development of cancer. So that's just one sort of side of the metal. But you can also evaluate that idea, of course, by checking whether your um, interventions have anti-cancer effects in kind of non-aging contexts, i.e. if you have, if you transplant cancer cells into, into a young mouse, um, and then you treat and check if it's anti-cancer or if you irradiate or chemically induce cancers in young animals and then check if your treatment is anti-cancer, then you kind of eliminate the aging component out of the equation. And if you do see under those circumstances anti-cancer effect, it's likely that these are direct anti-cancer effects, right? Um, likewise, if you do see uh, treatment or intervention effects on cancer cells and culture, that's also evidence that you're that you're taking aging out of the equation and that these are direct anti-cancer effects. And so what we found that out of those 80% of over 80% of cases where this has been shown, uh, for all of them actually there was evidence um, that you can target with the with these interventions um, cancer in non-aging context in mice in vivo. Um, and for I think 93% of cases, there was also evidence that you could target cancer cells in vitro. Um, and so that I think would strongly argue um, that that this sort of idea that you're directly targeting cancer um, and thereby extend lifespan is is pretty sound. And at that point, of course, you wouldn't need anymore the assumption that you're influencing aging to explain the lifespan effect, right? And and so I think in mice, the only way to get around this in the end is to not look at lifespan alone, right? because that is dominated so much by cancer, but instead um, uh, kind of perform a more multidimensional analysis where you're looking um, at uh, a range of different aging outcomes and then study basically how those were influenced by an intervention. Okay, now I understand. Yeah, it's great that you also immediately addressed uh, the counter argument, which was on my mind. So, mm -hmm. because of course, if you slow aging, you would expect that your treatment also slows cancer, but to give a specific example, something like rapamycin, for example, it can be repurposed to actually treat cancers because it slows cell growth. So this seems like an age-independent impact on cancer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I had a similar theory, well, kind of related to what you're saying. So I always thought our mouse longevity research is trapped in an anti-growth paradigm. Everything like calorie restriction, growth hormone knockouts, the dwarfs, rapamycin everything slows growth and all these treatments are highly related. I'm not sure if I would go to say to 100% everything is through cancer, right? But I'm very disappointed that all these treatments are so highly similar and we have very few novel out of the box uh, kind of 
you know, different treatments, different ideas mm -hmm. in the field? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I mean, I do think that, um, like I said, I think if you're, if you're, if you just look at lifespan and cancer, or there is in a species one dominating factor that limits lifespan, then your study design and you're kind of looking at targeting your, your readout is basically one of these two interconnected things, which would be lifespan, right? Um, then of course, if you see an extension of lifespan there, you're very likely to hit sort of the underlying factor, which would be cancer development. So I, Again, I mean, I do think um, that there is a need to kind of expand the scope of these analyses. Yes. But in the worst case, so some of these treatments might be still useful for chemo prevention in humans, which we still don't have. We don't have any drug that is even useful for that thing. So maybe something will come of that. <laughs> That's possible, although, of course, it remains to be investigated. Um, also, basically, I think there's a lot we still have to learn about uh, how well um, rapamycin is tolerated over extended periods of time, so possible side effects are what kind of could be uh, possible effects that may counter beneficial effects, such as effects on metabolism, hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, and so forth. Um, but in principle, I, I totally agree. I mean, the chemo prevention, in a way, is I think what what we see in in mice treated with rapamycin. Yeah, but. So what do you think about the theory that hyperproliferation by itself to some extent is an age-related condition or like a driver of aging? I think it was like Blagos Klan is like hyperfunction theory where he says that maybe during aging mTOR is too high and this itself is a driver of aging. Have you ever thought about that? Mm, I mean, I don't, I mean, of course you have cancers, but if you take cancers out of the equation, I don't think there is a lot of evidence for hyperproliferation in old mammals. I mean, if anything, it's actually the contrary, right? You get reduction in subproliferation. I mean, we did that for mice, looking at cell cycle regulators, for example, across a different range uh, um, of time ages and also across a range of tissues. And what you do see basically is the strong developmental related drop basically right into maturation. And then cell cycle markers across different tissues remain largely constant. Maybe there is a bit of a decline. Um, so I don't think that there is that there is actually good sort of experimental evidence for hyperproliferation. Um, uh, also, if you look at the mTOR activation state, of course, that goes up in some tissues, but also it goes down in many. So, um, yeah. I'm also not totally convinced by this idea yet. I don't see hard evidence for it. And as you mentioned, to some extent, we also have a problem of atrophy, which was originally kind of the idea behind actually supplementing with growth hormone or IGF-1 mm -hmm. to increase uh, regeneration and muscle growth, prevent sarcopenia. And this would, so we, we get both. We get probably some tissues show more of atrophy and cell loss and others might show hyperproliferation. I mean, the hyperproliferation is a singular event, basically, if you will, right, in the context of cancer development initially, right, and then it gets out of control. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing um, I just wanted to mention. But another was like when we go back to the mice, so a lot of them die from cancer. And for humans, let's say around 20% of humans die from cancer. But just because so many mice die from cancer, it, it is strictly speaking still hard to tell 
how much lifespan extension we would get from eradicating cancer in mice because we do know from evidence in humans going back decades right if you eradicate cancer in humans you do not get a 20 percent or like a large extent of extension of lifespan because all the other diseases increase in parallel so i wonder i would love to see this modeled in mice and to hear your opinion about this counter argument kind of to your yeah, that would be uh, very nice if there was a really robust method to kind of get rid of cancers in, in mice, then maybe actually they could also be used to model some other aspects of aging that you normally don't see because they die earlier, right? Um, from that point of view, it might be interesting too. Um, we have actually looked at some, at some of this. So in our um, intermittent fasting study or every other day feeding study, which was published in Nature Communications 2017, we, we, um, so we had a cohort of animals that were subjected to this dieting regime. Um, and there we did actually collect carcasses of animals that had spontaneously died for a careful pathological cause of death analysis. So basically there you check how many cancers are there, what are their size, where they're located. And then um, an experienced veterinary pathologist judge, judges whether that is likely lethal or not. Um, and so that's a cause of death analysis, right? And so from that, we know that um, I think it was like 86% of the controls died due to some kind of um, cancer. Um, and we saw in the facet animals that, that were significantly long-lived that this proportion was slightly reduced perhaps to 70%, but it was still high, right? And so that at least for this intermittent fasting regime, it suggests that what you're doing is, I mean, you're not totally eradicating cancer, mm -hmm. right? But rather you're postponing it and slowing it down a little bit, right? But eventually still most of the mice, at least in our study there, uh, died due to cancer development. So it, it it seems to be a very kind of strong cause of death, right? That's not so easy to, to get rid of. Um, and so um, it, it is, I think that would be the, the sort of the greater challenge here. Um, going back to your argument, um, it may not be so much actually other diseases coming up, but rather uh, that you're not fully controlling cancer development, but postponing it only and then eventually it comes up too. So I know it's a complex issue and we, we will not um, be able to figure it out just in one podcast, right? But I'm just thinking if we go from 85% deaths were caused by cancer to let's say 75%-ish, like, uh, is a 20% reduction in cancer mortality really enough to give us like the 30% lifespan extension that we see with Ciara or rapamycin? So to me, this sounds almost like a counter, slight counter argument to your work. Like the cancer reduction does not seem strong enough to maybe explain all of the lifespan benefit. Well, I think it is because I think it, um, I mean, we're not at that point, we're not comparing any more animals that are at the same age, right? But we're comparing animals mm -hmm. of different ages, the controls being younger um, than the mm -hmm. fasted ones, right? So we're collecting them at the point of death, which is later in the fasted than in the controls. Um, and there is a, a reduction in cancer, but it is not as pronounced as you I mean, it's not that now there is another type of pathology taking over and killing the animals. It is still uh, mostly cancer. Um, and I think that's also what's been seen basically in the large um, studies looking at rapamycin um, from the ITP um, that, event that eventually these mice will die due to cancer. It's just delayed. Um, yeah, so um, I think this is kind of an obstacle perhaps to kind of judging 
what other pathologies might be playing into limiting lifespan in mice, um, simply because you need really large studies to look at that, uh, given that, that these are relatively rare um, instances where other pathologies are the killer. So in your work specifically, what was the second and third most important killer for mice? Um, actually, for that one, I mean, we had um, some cases of heart where it was judged to be heart failure. Um, and uh, that was that was pretty much it. Um, uh, I think, you know, if you look at other studies, um, things that, that come up to are uh, problems with kidney function. Um, uh, yeah, uh, some infections, for example. Um, uh, but but basically, again, I think if you if you wanted to sort of in more detail explore how whether and, and that would be an interesting study too, right? A very large uh, scaled and well powered study that can look also at these rarer instances and rarer causes of death, and then checking whether or not some of these longevity interventions actually also target um, these sort of non neoplastic diseases. The one study that I know that did this with rapamycin came to the conclusion that rapamycin actually only affected cancer-related causes of death and not the non-neoplastic ones. Um, but again, I think it may be of interest to do this um, uh, in you know a variety of mouse strains that have sort of slightly different profiles in 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 cause of death, um, although it's cancer. In, 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 in them, in most of them, right? Um, and then do like a really large scale study to see whether you target some of the other causes of death as well. I agree. That would be a very interesting study design. I think a really large study on the causes of death in mice would be useful. It would also maybe allow us to do some statistical modeling to explain like what are the effects of a X percent reduction in, in cancer mortality. That would be very important to study. But another thing that I wanted to comment on, which I think uh, to get your opinion on. So I think two things were shown in the literature. One is that several treatments like CR, caloric restriction, rapamycin, that they that they might improve the frailty index in mice. And how would you explain this from your point of view? Is this not a slowing of aging? Um, well, I mean, I think the frailty index, um, you have to, I think it always makes more sense and this is actually the same argument as with the lifespan, right? I think it kind of, I think usually you gain more information if you're looking at um, at the items um, on the frailty index and checking basically how each item is influenced by a given treatment, then sort of computing them into one single index and then just looking at treatment effects on the index. And then in the end, it's kind of harder to judge what actually happened, right? It's kind of similar as with the lifespan argument. And if you look at that with the frailty index, also I think there were lacking large, well-powered studies that do this. I mean, there are studies that basically show that some of these longevity interventions have beneficial effects on the frailty index. But then if you're looking at the items, right, on the item level, then I think it, the, it usually breaks down for power reasons, right? It's just not well enough powered to, to look at that level of analysis where you also need, need I think usually would need lots of animals because many of these items are categorical, right? Pathology present, not present. Um, and so there, I think you typically 
would need larger studies to really draw good inferences about it. Also, there's another argument, um, and this other argument again comes back to do we actually have effects that are a kind of causal effects on the aging pathology or symptomatic ones? And that, of course, applies to the items on the frailty index as well, right? I mean, tumor development being one, for example, um, it's also an item on the on the frailty index, and maybe we can just use that for the sake of the argument. Um, so, if for for influencing tumors, and we discussed, you could do that either by um, sort of symptomatically dampening tumor growth, for example, giving a cytostatic drug, or you could actually causally um, slow it down by preventing whatever um, underlies tumor initiation in the first place. So this might be um, accumulation of genomic damage, for instance, right? And so I think also for, the, for, for these effects on items in the frailty index, it would be an important question to try to understand whether we are actually just symptomatically influencing a certain phenotype, that item, or whether we're really slowing um, the sort of rate of its development. Yeah, so longitudinal analysis would be important, but also the other shortcoming of the frailty index is that obviously cancer itself would probably increase frailty of the mice. So you could have a pathway just through purely cancer. That, that's a possibility, of course. An animal will be in bad shape um, if it has advanced cancer and uh, that will give points on the frailty index now. Yeah, I could go on for hours about all these interesting corner cases, counter arguments and so on, but maybe we can look at more of the empirical work that you did looking at studies, including both young and old mouse groups and like what were, were your main findings there consistent mm -hmm. with your theory? Um, so basically our idea was that we want to sort of make aging measurable by looking at many different age-sensitive parameters. And actually initially we didn't include only parameters that we knew to be age-sensitive, but we constructed basically an analysis pipeline um, that is kind of state-of-the-art in phenotyping and is suitable to cover actually a range of different physiological systems, organs, tissues, and so forth. It's kind of like a mouse uh, basically, you know, going to a checkup um, at different specialty doctors, going to the neurologist, going to the immunologist, going to uh, finally to the pathologist and so forth, right? And so when we're, um, when we do that with young and old animals, then we can, of course, extract um, age-sensitive parameters. So those are the ones that differ between young and old. Uh, and then we can use those to test whether a given treatment um, has an effect on these aging phenotypes, on which subset it has an effect. Um, and if we have more than two, uh, more than one treatment group, we can also actually look whether we get similar uh, treatment effects in younger animals um, uh, before there is a change in phenotype. And this is actually something that we did take care of in this study as well, which we didn't do in our previous um, rapamycin work. So in this study, what we did is we profile basically um, uh, phenotypes across the lifespan ranging from three to 26. So I think three, five, eight, 14, 20, 26 month of old animals were included. And we did that to understand actually when is there evidence for change, detectable change in phenotypes. Um, and we found that actually most changes were kind of gaining significant differences to the young control level in the second year of life. So most happening later on. And what we also found is that there was relative stability phenotypically 
um, in young adulthood, so between three and five months. And that was an important finding because it suggests that whatever treatment effect we're seeing um, in uh, young animals that were kind of in this, in this age range uh, cannot be interpreted by you know, influencing age-dependent change in phenotype, but rather are better explained by an age-independent drug effect. Um, and so this is kind of the design that we then use to study um, three different um, uh, longevity interventions. One we included uh, was a sort of hypomorphic uh, mTOR allele. Um, we had previously studied rapamycin, that's why we focused um, on that. Um, one other one that we included is, was an intermittent or like was a reanalysis of our previous intermittent fasting regime. Um, and then also we had a, a mouse line that um, is growth hormone deficient. Specifically, these are called, so-called little mice with a, with a point mutation in growth hormone releasing hormone receptor. Um, and so they're dwarfs um, and, and, and are known to be long-lived. And so then we asked for each of these three interventions which aspects of the, which subset of the age-sensitive phenotypes do we actually change um, by the experimental intervention? Um, do we, which one do we not change? Um, do we actually exacerbate some of the changes of, that are related with aging? Do we improve some? And so what we found for, basically for all of these interventions is that there was a mixture. There was some that were not, not, not improved, some age-sensitive phenotypes, um, others were um, exacerbated, um, and then others were um, sort of countered, right, where treatment had the opposite effect um, than aging had. Um, these were the sort of the, what was interesting is that the majority of cases, I mean, that the sort of um, phenotypes were, were, were treatment had a, sort of an ameliorative, ameliorative effect were larger than the ones where there was an exacerbation. Um, uh, but then we wanted to go on and ask out of the um, phenotypes that got um, age-sensitive phenotypes that, that, that got ameliorated by treatment, um, do we generally see similar effects in the young animals or do we not see that? Um, and what we found, if, if we compare effect sizes for all these subsets of phenotypes, we find that there is actually um, a relatively high concordance with many phenotypes um, being similarly influenced in the young group, um, SDR in the chronically sort of treated old group. And that would suggest actually that um, a lot of these effects that we're looking at are actually age independent uh, and cannot really be interpreted as being evidence for slowing aging because there is not evidence in there that you're actually targeting um, sort of the rate, uh, the rate of change. Um, yeah, so that was sort of in a nutshell what, what we found in the in study. So when you say many phenotypes, how many in total did you study? Um, so we, for the, so there were overall, we used kind of this uh, basic, similarly uh, basic approach for all the studies that we conducted. Of course, there's some, some slight variations in which parameters we have specifically for logistic reasons. reasons. Uh, sometimes there was instrument downtime. Um, sometimes the immunologist had a different antibody panel and so forth. So it wasn't hundred percent concordant. Uh, but overall, we always had, um, I mean, uh, I think the numbers for the, for our baseline study were somewhat over 200 phenotypes, um, included, uh, and out of those, I think 130 being um, age sensitive and, and forming the basis basically of this conclusion. All right. So maybe I can try to rephrase again what you're saying. And maybe I can use an example with a kind of phenotype that was not in your panel. 
but something mm-hmm. that I used to be interested in. So mm-hmm. we know, for example, there is an age-related exponential increase in mitochondrial DNA deletions. So if a treatment really slows aging, I guess what you're saying is we would expect that the difference between the control and the treated would increase with age. Mm-hmm. It would not be similarly decreased in young and old, and it should, there should, the delta should become larger. It's a disease-modifying drug, yes. Co- yes. to use a medical term. Yeah. Yes. Of course, you can only use that logic to things that are, not, that, that are also measurable uh, in young animals, right? I mean, some of the sort of causal or like rate effects that we've been seeing relate to, for instance, histopathological changes, which you can detect only in the old animals, but you cannot do that in the young animals. An example of that was uh, in the brain, for example, we've been using um, uh, eosinophilic inclusion bodies, um, so small inclusions in thalamic neurons. Um, that happen with aging in mice and also in humans. Um, and we found there that the fasted animals um, had a strong attenuation of that phenotype. Um, of course, we can, I mean, it, it, it is kind of not possible to, for the, or not meaningful for that comparison to judge whether it's affected in the young group because it's not there, right? Um, so, so I think the strongest uh, conclusions about um, sort of symptomatic treatment effects that we can make are for those phenotypes where we also can have sort of a dynamic range that we can measure in the young group of animals, such as, I don't know, red blood cell count or um, locomotor activity levels or things like that. Do you think this is a limitation because there are probably a lot of important and interesting phenotypes which are almost zero in healthy young animals and then increase? In the old? I think I think it is. I think it is an important limitation. And I, but I think it is more a limitation of study design in a way, right? So we I mean we, we discussed the cancer example before. That would also be something that is, I mean, in our study design, you would find the same thing, right? We would find that the treatment in young animals doesn't do anything because there is no cancer. And then in old animals, it would attenuate cancer development. And so um, I mean, I think there we also have to be careful what we conclude, right? Even though we would see rate effects, right? We have to be careful what we conclude um, because, again, we could well influence the, um, uh, well, the, the phenotype in this case in a symptomatic fashion without targeting the underlying biology. We, we discussed this for cancer, right? Um, so this is, in principle, applicable to other um, age-related uh, phenotypes or phenomena as well. So there it becomes more difficult to, I think, uncover that you that you that what you're targeting basically is not the underlying biology, but you're targeting something else. Um, this possibility, of course, also exists for things that are only there in old animals, but not in young animals. It just becomes more difficult to uncover it. So another thing that I found interesting about the paper, um, I was looking for a positive takeaway and there were like two aspects which are very interesting that in general, these age-related phenotypes were improved, but they were improved in both young and old. And in some of the models, there was some more evidence for you call one of them the baseline effect and the other one the rate effect, right? So in some of them, there was evidence that maybe both are at play. Yes. Um, yeah, but I think also there we have to be careful in how we interpret it, um, simply because, I mean, I think if you do see this pattern, 
there are in principle two explanations for it. One explanation is that what you're doing is really a combination of influencing the phenotype directly, as well as influencing each, its age-dependent change, right? That is kind of the more optimistic uh, interpretation. But of course, there is also the interpretation that you're only affecting the phenotype. And the reason why you are seeing larger effect size in the old group of animals is simply that they received a longer treatment, right? And so if, if basically treatment effect size goes with, um, with treatment duration, which is a reasonable assumption in many cases, then that might explain such a pattern as well. So I think whenever we do see such a pattern, we have to be mindful in not necessarily jumping to the conclusion that, oh, yeah, this is evidence that we're actually targeting age-dependent change because it could also be primarily uh, effects on phenotype only. So it's tricky. This is, this almost sounds philosophical. So basically like in principle, any kind of rate change or most of these phenotypes might not be related to aging. It might be related to the duration of exposure. Yeah, you could, I think you could uncover that basically by varying, for example, the um, exposure duration, right? And if you did that for a phenotype, basically, that is stable for some time, right, um, before it shows age-dependent change, and you find that that treatments with different treatment durations um, have effects on rate there, right, that would suggest that what you're actually having is an effect on of treatment duration. Um, so there are some ways to look at that experimentally, but I think that's an important uh, consideration to keep in mind when interpreting these effects. That's an additional consideration. I did not see that in, in the paper, but it's another level. It's Oh, yeah, we, dis we, we discussed there is a section on that in the paper. We discussed that. Okay, there. then I did not. Maybe okay, it's I missed, just missed it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. This aspect. Okay. Mm, another thing that I was uh, just curious about on the implementation, was there a reason why you choose the mTOR hypomorphic mouse and not rapamycin? Um, yeah, so basically, like I said, we studied uh, rapamycin in the NEFET paper before, published 10 years ago, roughly. At that time, there was a criticism that, you know, maybe there are effects of dosing and so forth that um, play into the kinds of effects and the strength of the effects that you're seeing. So we were kind of planning for this study to include another model, this hypomorphic M4 model, which has basically been previously shown to have very strong effects on lifespan and also uh, slightly smaller um, and has a bunch of other um, effects basically that, that make sense in the context of um, loss of function of, of mTOR. So we wanted to go beyond um, uh, rapamycin at that point. Um, that's why we did this model. I see. And I'm wondering, so there are like studies on different age-related phenotypes and some of them are very specific, for example, showing rapamycin slows muscle aging, and they focus on a certain subset. And some of them arrive to a different conclusion than your paper. Is this because, could this be because of publication bias or just because they don't have a young control? Because your muscle data looked quite bad compared to some other studies I've seen as a method, I mean, in, in the sense that rapamycin did nothing for muscle health in mice mm -hmm. uh, or very little. Like what could be the reasons for like these discrepancies between studies? Um, yeah, of course, you, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I looked at the specific study that you had pointed out, this Ahmed uh, Um, I mean, one thing that, that one important thing that's different between our studies and there is that there is a difference in the dose, actually, right? So I think, um, that could, of course, play into, 
um, the kinds of effects that you're seeing. Um, but then on the other hand, of course, their data also didn't point to sort of very consistent, straightforward to explain rapamycin effects, right? Because some muscles were actually uh, been sort of affected, others were not. Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, uh, well, one, one would have to look at it case by case. I don't know if you're knowing of more studies basically that um, that demonstrated basically a beneficial effect of propamycin on um, grip strength or on um, sort of muscle function measured electrophysiologically or so. Is there kind of like anything else um, that's out there that you're referring to? I'm not an expert. It's just that this one study was on my mind because we were recently discussing it and also because their methods, there was like the question whether you adjust like for um, the mouse body mass and or like the muscle cross section area yeah. when you do grip strength. So there are a lot of very subtle, interesting questions that are different between. Yeah, that, yeah, I think actually, they, I think those really would be worthy kind of a separate detailed discussion. Um, of course, for, I mean, I think also in that paper, basically, I think normalization is done by, um, by just calculating a ratio of crypt strength to body weight. Um, and of course, that is not really what you want to do. I think if you want to take body weight into the equation, the best thing you would do is probably some kind of linear model where you're adding body weight um, and age kind of as independent factors and then see whether you get an age effect considering basically a given body weight. Um, but that's not done by, by many people. And also I think in our paper, we in the rapamycin paper, we report just curb strength directly. Um, though I think with, with our dosing, we didn't have a major effect on body weight either. So I think there it's kind of like comparable. But other than that, also there are differences in, I mean, we look at histopathological data in a sense that we're kind of quantifying cross-sectional muscle fiber area, which goes down with age and which wasn't affected by rapamycin. And I think they didn't include this kind of analysis, uh, but focused on other muscles instead and did electrophysiological measurements. So there could be, of course, um, these kind of factors could, of course, explain different results as well or make com comparison of, of, of results more difficult. Yeah, so I, I did not want to go too much into details. It was just something that I mentioned, I wanted to mention. And there is another aspect that is interesting here that, and I'm sure their, their work is, uh, it, it's a, it's, it's a good study, right? But the problem is when you study a single specific outcome, that publication bias is always an issue. Even if you're a, a good, honest researcher, there doesn't have to be any maliciousness, right? But it's way harder to publish negative findings. So I always am suspicious of these single tissue organ analysis of longevity interventions. What does it really tell us? How many studies were not published where it did not work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Cool. Sometimes I wonder the same about the young, uh, about the young group thing. Um, of course, I mean, I don't know whether people don't consider it or whether there's also maybe a reporting bias kind of involved there. Um, yeah. Uh, of course, I think, again, I think large scale studies basically, right? Uh, kind of multi omics, um, um, deep phenotyping basically with, with, with large data sets, they kind of, I think, um, help to, perhaps help to get a little bit around it because the effects are more fully basically um, understandable. Um, yeah. So one of the last few points I want to make here and well, I'm trying to think clearly. So if we exclude the issue of cancer, 
So if you look at, at, a, at a drug, of course, if you want to find a true geroprotector that really slows aging, um, your approach is probably superior. You want to have like really perfect longitudinal studies at multiple time points. But as some other people pointed out, if a drug works for whatever reason, right, if it helps old people, then it might still be a decent drug. It might be still a blockbuster that will save a lot of lives. So that's the other aspect. Like, so, so maybe we don't always need a young group. If we can show benefits in old, it might be still relevant. Um, well, just one point of clarification. So we did, we actually didn't do longitudinal studies, but rather our studies were cross-sectional, right? So we had kind of multiple groups, right? We didn't follow them up along, which I think also limits basically um, what kinds of measures you can include, right? Um, so ours was based on many invasive measures, so basically that was done in a cross-sectional way. Um, but to your question, um, yeah, I mean, I think that argument, of course, um, comes up. Um, I mean, I tend to think kind of like in the spirit of the geroscience hypothesis, the idea actually being that, or the hypothesis being that we're targeting the biology of aging, and that is basically our hook into um, the prevention of multiple age-related diseases. Um, if, if, you, if you start on that premise, right, then I think it is important that your treatment is actually targeting aging mechanisms, or at least that's the implicit assumption, I think. Um, and for that, you really have to show, I think, that it's not a symptomatic treatment effect, but that it's a causal one, right? That you're really targeting um, whatever underlies uh, aging. So to give you another example, if we take um, hair graying as an age-sensitive phenotype, having black hair, uh, for, for instance, in young adulthood, and then gradually you get more and more uh, white hair, and eventually you only have white hair. And let's assume for a moment that um, loss of melanocyte stem cells um, is the, the cause actually that underlies this hair graying phenotype, then if we wanted to have a, a causal treatment that would have to target that particular biology, right? So it would be a bio biology, a, a treatment that prevents the age-dependent loss of melanocyte stem cells, right? But of course, I can also change my phenotype in a symptomatic fashion. So I could just take a chemical to color my hair, right? Then it would look phenotypically young too, it would be black. But this kind of treatment, of course, would give me zero clues about what the biology is that actually underlies this phenotype, right? So I think this would be an important argument for actually, you know, um, making this distinction. Um, between symptomatic and causal treatment effects, at least if we're interested in what aging mechanisms really are. So, and with that, I mean biological mechanisms that underlie and drive the age-dependent change in phenotype. If we're not interested in that, if we're in only interested in, you know, whatever helps is fine, um, then of course, this is a different approach. Um, but I mean, I do think that a lot of the implicit assumptions of the geroscience hypothesis actually are that we're targeting the biology of aging. I concur that that's definitely what we want to do. We definitely aim to identify and pursue drugs that do slow aging. And before we come to an end, I have maybe two questions for you. So one would be, what are you working on or what do you want to work on in the future? And the second was um, looking at rapamycin specifically. So there is a lot of positive mouse data, some evidence of chemo prevention. 
And we'll be probably having this debate in 20 years, like whether it truly slows aging or not, because it seems like it will be difficult to settle and make everyone happy. Do you think the data is good enough to go into some preliminary human trials and just see if it is beneficial? So those will be the two questions. Um, well, I think the trials that are kind of underway right now are geared towards safety. I think that's, or I mean, safety conclusions can be drawn from that. I think that would be an important first step. Um, I do think, my personal opinion is that for kind of like for the whole field, I mean, it's in, in a, the whole field, it's in a kind of very translational mode now, right? So we think we know what, what the biology of aging is, and now we're applying that to humans. I do think that this is kind of, I mean, for all the points that we discussed in the last hour, right? I do think that that's kind of premature, in my opinion. I do think we have to actually really understand more what actually drives what aging is on an organism and aging ultimately what I'm interested in in terms of aging is aging of organisms or not aging of cells or so, right? Um, so what actually drives age-dependent phenotypic changes I think requires further clarification. Um, of course, if there are defined endpoints that one is interested in, such as, uh, like you were saying, chemoprevention uh, or so forth, um, uh, whatever is sort of beneficial and uh, and could help uh, people um, is worth uh, being studied. I just think it, it would be important to kind of phrase it in a proper way, right? To see what we're really doing, whether we're really whether we talk more about slowing aging or whether we're talking uh, talking about, for example, targeting cancer. That makes, of course, a big difference. I like the perspective. And just very briefly, what do you want to do next? What's the next project? Um, so we're kind of active in um, actually sort of assessing um, a number of the hallmarks of aging, basically, uh, using our approach and addressing um, to what extent we actually have age effects uh, or rate effects on aging phenotypes um, under different treatment regimes. So this is something where there is going to be more work coming out um, in the next time. Um, and then what I'm personally very interested in is actually taking sort of this approach um, of using age-dependent phenotypic change as the endpoint of study, right? And then trying to identify modulators of that because I think that that ultimately gives you sort of aging mechanisms. And I think that has to be done sort of phenotype by phenotype um, and sort of comparing across systems that will give some clues as to how complex this sort of situation might be in the end. Uh, or perhaps there are also clusters, right, of... Uh, regulators that play into age-dependent change um, of, of various phenotypes, right? So I think uh, these kinds of uh, discussion points that we had with regards to study design, this is something that we're, we're actively addressing. Okay, that's, um, that's a very good conclusion. Um, but actually, I have just one more follow-up question, because since you mentioned you want to look at these phenotypes, and you had so many of them, right? Do you think you, want, you can narrow them down? Because it sounds really expensive. You mean we can narrow them? Because you had like 200 and 130 were age-related, right? This sounds like a very expensive study design if you tried, want to can go lower with fewer of those phenotypes. Well, I think then it depends on what you're ultimately what you're interested in, I think. And also depending on the approach, I think under some sort of designs, it may well be possible to look at sort of data um, and age-dependent change in data um, using many endpoints. Um, and then in other study, study designs that might be 
uh, sort of prohibitively costly. Um, and there, then of course, you have to narrow it down to the particular phenotypes we're interested in. One that we're super interested in is of course related to brain. Um, uh, so synapse loss over time, for example, is one particular phenotype that we're interested in exploring further. I'm looking forward to seeing those studies and hopefully we can have more debates either on the podcast or through email because we both share the goal of improving mouse longevity study designs. So perfect. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was fun and I hope you have a great day, productive one and talk to you later in the future. All right. That was a great podcast. Basically, Dan's argument is that we do not understand aging well enough to intervene, and most of our anti-aging treatments could be largely working through reducing cancer. This is certainly an important, if controversial, idea, and I will briefly address some arguments and counter-arguments to Dan's thesis. This will be rather technical, so I'm sorry in advance. Before I do talk about the counter-arguments here, let me mention the point of agreement I do think that the mouse data exaggerates the impact of lifespan extending interventions exactly because mice are short-lived and develop a lot of cancer. There is also something else which I did not mention in the podcast that is interesting. Repomycin is unusually fast-acting in some ways. It does not mean it cannot affect aging rate per se, but there appears to be an element of rejuvenation in the mode of action of repomycin or something related to programmed aging. Now, on to the four counterpoints to Dan's thesis. One would be there is evolutionary conservation of rapamycin effects that extends to invertebrates, which do not develop cancer. But Dan already addressed this in the podcast. He explains that invertebrates might be developing some kind of hyperproliferation, which is improved by rapamycin. Secondly, perhaps more interesting, there is Tiber's paradox. Eradicating cancer in humans would extend lifespan by only 5%. Therefore, merely slowing cancer in mice should not yield huge lifespan benefits, even if cancer is more common in mice. This is at least my intuition. But to prove it one way or another, we would need to do the actual math based on autopsy studies. Third, pathology scores of different organs were improved in old mice treated with rapamycin, while there was no control group, no young control group in these studies, it does at least suggest that there is more than cancer going on here. And I'm thinking about some work, I think it was by Warren Ladigas, on the pathology scores of different organs. And fourth, maybe the really important aging phenotypes are not measurable in young animals, which Dan used for his studies to construct these aging-related phenotypes. And one example would be the mitochondrial deletions that I mentioned. Of course, that's just pure speculation. Either way, hopefully this controversy can be resolved soon and the field can move forward to develop amazing lifespan-extending drugs that work in all kinds of mammals. I will leave you with one potential study design that could address some of Dan's criticisms. The idea is we could follow the frailty index longitudinally in mice that are non-tumor bearing and that did not die from cancer to exclude any effects that malignancies could have on modulating frailty and other phenotypes. All right, that's all for now. I hope you can get enough of aging science and see you at the next podcast.